Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Film Club Podcast, where every month we deep dive into a different aspect of cinema. Directors, actors, genres, or franchises, it does not matter, because it's always fun at the Film Club. I'm Dean. I'm Boo. And this month, we're talking about movies about movies. And this week, we're talking about... The Artist. From 2011, this is a five-time Oscar winner. It is considered one of the most awarded films in French cinema. It was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. And it is a silent film made uh, about 90 years after silence films went out of favor. Yeah. And it's fucking fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, this is a movie that's near and dear to my heart. Um, I've talked about it in the past. I think I went to go see this in the movie theaters like five, six times. Okay. Usually you, usually your movies are one and done, but this one you just kept going back. I, I mean, there's some that I see twice in the theaters, like Guardians. Uh, Guardians 2, sorry. The Batman. But yeah, this is the only one that I've seen, you know... Like a whole hand, you know, a couple digits. Like, damn, that's a lot of times, you know, to go back to the theater just to see one singular movie. That is like a thing with this movie when it came out. Because when it comes out, like every critic is like, oh, the savior of the cinema. Like, they, what is it? Roger Ebert's like, oh, this movie, uh, it's, it's like the best movie to come out in like 30 years about movies. You know, there were people who were talking about like... Yeah, I went to go see this like three times, you know, just the first one was for my job as a reviewer. The other two times were just for me. Yeah. And it's wild to me that this movie is so beloved. Oh, God. Okay. Is this where you're going to drop the the boom on me? uh, The the boom is that I love the movie. Like the boom is that I really did enjoy the movie. I thought it was like. So the knot in my stomach can unclinch now. Exactly. Okay. Uh, For anyone who's wondering, every time we come in to record a movie that, you know, Becky picks, She's always like, if Dean hates this movie, I'm, I don't think I can handle it. I don't. I don't think my heart is strong enough. I am not that critical about movies. You like, are. Honestly. I'm a little critical. You about so are. I'm a little. I'm a little mean about movies. But I like, mean, you, you, you know. cut it. You know, then you pour the lemon juice in my wounds, and you know, you add some rock salt in there just to really make sure I feel it. I only mildly disliked Adam's Family Values, and then you kept challenging me on it, and hey, it made me hey, hate hey, it more. Hey, hey. You were mad that people love Adam's Family Values and I, that it did better than Meatballs. I don't understand and that. And it did better than Camp Nowhere. I don't understand that. The not numbers at all. were so good for Adam's Family Values. I do not understand that. That, that. that For the longest time, Adam's Family Values was our most viewed episode on YouTube. It was awesome. <laughs> if it wasn't for the fact that the mummy just blew up on the algorithm, that, yeah. move, that movie might still be our number one episode of our first year. Might be. And then Dean claims not to be, you know, a movie snob or, you know, I, I don't get that critical, but this man sits up at night and thinks about Adam's Family Values. It makes me so fucking angry. I think the Frida's going to play it soon or they just recently so... played it. I was going to get us tickets so we could go see it on the big screen. That movie just makes me so fucking angry because I'm like... Because it did better than your picks. It's not even that. I watched the movie. I'm like, this makes no fucking sense. And it looks uh... awful. It looks so bad. I love it so much. Well, come on, Pubert. Give us the synopsis. (laughs) It's so fucking savage. But yeah, so the the artist, right? Um, I really did enjoy the movie. I thought it was just really lovely. It's a nice little melodrama. I like silent films. Yeah. Um, Are you a silent film girl? Like, do you go back and watch silent movies? I mean, you know, I am the one that got you into Chaplin. Yes. Yes, that's true. And then you have been, you know, withholding my Chaplin DVDs from me. 
you loaned me the great dictator. You knew this was going to happen. Well, I mean, it would be one thing if you were just holding on to one. You're holding on to all my DVDs. You're like, yeah, you're not getting them back. And I'm like, what? Yeah, it's nice. You know, I, mean, I don't have to buy them. No, they're mine. Yeah, you know. But yeah, like, um, I know you're a Chaplin girl. I like Buster Keaton. Yeah, I enjoy Buster Keaton too. But you, do you go back and watch like silent dramas? Like, you know, your Sunrises or um, like Metropolis, Dr. Mabusa, things like that? It depends. I mean, I have to be like in the mood for it. Uh, this is just the one that kind of, when you say a movie has boo energy. This has boo energy. This is like, you know, the nucleus of boo energy. Old style film. It's black and white. It's in love with old Hollywood. Uh, there's tap dancing in it and a musical number. Yeah, yeah. This is a lot of boo energy. Again, like it, it is. I really did love the movie. I thought it was a lot of fun, but I will say I am more fascinated by it that I am enthralled by what the movie's actually doing. Mm-hmm. Because, again, it's 2011 when this movie comes out, and it, and they uh, are taking... Two, 2012 for the States. Because oh, yeah. it debuted at Cannes, and then, you know, it made its way around the circuit before we eventually finally got it here. Didn't, did it already win an Oscar before it debuted in America? No. It had won, I think, uh, Jean Dujardin, he had won... Best actor from Cannes. Oh, he already got Cannes, BAFTAs, the the Cesar Awards. So it was a thing where, you know, it was kind of like, wow, he's really getting all these major awards and it hasn't even debuted in the States yet. So I think by the time we got it here, it wasn't too far away from the Oscars. Oh, it was one of those things where it gets in at like a November, December mm-hmm. release and then, you know, Oscars in March yeah. it wins. I see. Yeah, because the... The movie being this huge, huge artistic swing of being a black and white silent film and it doing as well as it does is incredibly fascinating to me because the year it comes out, we're getting like Cars 2, Deathly Hollows Part 2, uh, um, Midnight uh, in Paris, Midnight in Paris, Hugo. Hugo. Yeah, we're getting all these movies. Like, I think Powers of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides comes out this year. These movies that Puss are doing. Puss in Boots. Yeah, these movies that are making so much money. It is the year of sequel blockbusters. And, you know, the Oscar contentions, we'll, we'll get into that because yeah. I think the Oscar contention this year was like pretty weak. But the movie itself is so different than everything else in the field. This movie is a different breed of what's going on. Oh, yeah. I know a lot about this movie. I've seen it a ton of times. I I love, you know, learning about movies. So there was a lot of things I already knew going into the movies or into this movie. But, you know, yes, it won a ton of Oscars. But just, you know, the accolades that, you know, it made with those Oscars, like, you know, this being the most decorated French film. This was... um, I, I think that's a that's a weird one, right? Because yeah. you think of French movies and you're like, oh, well, Breathless, Rules of the Game. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's got to be like, you know, 400 Blows. There's got to be all these like French New Wave films that probably have all these accolades. And this movie just sweeps every fucking award show oh, it yeah. ever shows up in. And then you dive in deep to the like, you know, Academy Award history where this is the only second silent film picture to win for Best Picture. Yeah. Following uh, Wings in 1927. Or, um, have you seen Wings? Haven't seen it. It is Top Gun, but for World War One. Oh, awesome! It, no, yeah, like no meme. Okay, because I've seen 
um because two films win best picture that year it's sunrise and wings yeah sunrise is a goddamn masterpiece like sunrise is like legitimately one of the greatest movies ever made and that was also part of the art direction for this movie it was based off of sunrise by um fw Murnau. he's the same guy that did um what was it uh nosferatu yes which another like fucking kino film and city girl from 1930 so these two movies were kind of the inspo for this film. But, you know, back to the Academy Awards. So, you know, this is the second silent film to ever take, you know, home a, a Best Picture Award. Um, this was the first ever Academy Best Picture uh, Award winner to be produced from a non-English-speaking uh, country. And it was financed, you know, in France and Belgium. So it's not even a film that was financed here, even though the film is entirely shot in Los Angeles and Hollywood. That's a thing people get confused about being like, oh, well, it's an it's, you know, a movie. It's set in America and all this other stuff. It's a French film. Like It is. It's not an American film. This is a French film by French actors and directors and producers, producers. pretty much everyone except the like where it is filmed is French. Yeah. And I mean, Jean Dujardin, he's the first French actor to ever win uh, best actor. And he gives a great performance in this movie. Oh, yeah. But let's tell everyone. What the movie's actually about. We got the back of the box today. We do have the back of the box today for the artist. Oh, you can't read that box, can you? I'm, I'm working it out. <laughs> okay, okay, I got it. Okay, sorry, my eyes aren't what they used to be. <clears throat> so the back of the box for the artist. George Valentine is a movie star that is hanging... Hump. George Valentine <laughs> is a movie star that is having a crisis when sound is introduced into film and his career begins to fade. Parallel to George is Peppy Miller, a one-time extra and dancer who gets her big break, and as sound enters film, her star begins to rise. These two stories intertwine over the five years as sound changes film and brings these two closer together as they fall in love. Also, like, George goes through, like, the worst beats ever. Oh, yeah. I mean, George is, you know... You know, this movie, to describe it to someone that hasn't seen it, it's like singing in the rain without the music. Without the joy? It gets really depressing it, and dark in the middle. It does. But just to see, you know, the, the contrasts and, you know, he's at the top of his game when we start the movie. And Peppy is, you know, working her way up through the ranks. And then it's just a complete 180 where Peppy becomes the star and he's kind of this has-been. Yeah. But, you know... Peppy's still grateful that because of him, she was able to get a foothold into the industry. And because of her feelings for him, she's never really let him go. She's tried to, you know, keep him, keep his head above the water, but he's not helping himself either. Yeah. Um, let's, let's get into their performances because the movie is silent. So it's not very, um, plotty. It's a melodrama. Yeah. Really? You, you have to read into what's happening i mean you get you know cue cards every now and then but it's mostly reading into the performances yeah and the lead performance of uh jean dujardin okay jean 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 our buddy jean here great performance honestly he is doing a lot and it's a silent performance so he has to be able to pantomime and play not only silent film acting, which is kind of over the top. I love the sequence when he's at the dance, when he first like dances with Pepper or Peppy. <laughs> yeah, with Pepper Potts. We're, we're going back into Marvel. <laughs> exactly. When he's dancing with Peppy and 
they're like, all right, are you know, are you ready? And action. And he, you know, looks like, you know, a Zorro where he's mm-hmm. like moving across and he's like hamming it up, right? Because that's old school silent film yeah. acting. And then when he gets to Peppy and they kind of lock eyes and they're doing a little dance and it changes. And then he goes from... He's becoming more human. Yes. He goes from this very over-the-top showy acting to this naturalistic, like post-1950s-60s like naturalism Mm -hmm. but it's still toned in a way that you can understand it in a silent film and Mm -hmm. that seems like a huge amazing leap to me where he's able to play subtle but readable without dialogue because that people think well you know whatever you're just watching this guy like look his eyes around you'd understand that he is madly in love and also incredibly depressed i'm like that that's fucking difficult to do when you can't talk to anybody yeah right and it's it's a fascinating performance in that peppy miller on the other hand i don't think she's as good as desjardin De- uh, john i i love uh peppy miller who is played by berenice bejo she is the wife of the director of this movie i could tell and you know she <laughs> You know, he, you know, since that's his wife, he was able to write, you know, her into the character. And I feel like, you know, she's, I think she's amazing. I think, I think she's good. I don't know if she's amazing. I think my issue with her performance is, I know this is going to sound weird. She feels so much more modern, which, uh, and, and hear me out on this, hear me out on this. I can see how it plays into it a little bit where, mm-hmm. oh, well, she's adapting to sound. You know, she's this person who's a little out of time, whereas um, uh, Jean, he is, like, perfect. Like, he looks like he could just be Doug- Douglas Fairbanks. Yeah, like, he well, I mean, looks like a silent film that, star. That's also, you know, who his character is based off of. He's a mixture of Douglas Fairbanks Sr. Mm-hmm. and John Gilbert. Yeah, but he looks like he could walk into any, like, 1920s home set and fit right in. Yeah. Her for some reason, like I, I could not get the feeling that she looked right for I think like a 1920 you. thing. Well, how she's acting also feels like a different level of of acting for this for this era when she's like being the star girl. I don't know. It felt like I felt weird with her in this position. It might again might be a thing where my taste, your taste differ in this point. Yeah, I think that's just a you thing because I, I feel like she, you know, she's very appropriate to the period mm. but at the same time we don't really know the age gap in between george and peppy i mean obviously he's older than she is but we don't know by how much i would say and they're both in their 30s he's on one end she's on the other so you know i have a feeling that it's more he is stuck in his ways of you know a lot of the the actors in the silent you know uh, film genre where it was just sound you know sound's not going to be a thing and you know peppy's you know one of these Young Bloods in it where it's kind of like, oh, no, cool. We're getting new technology, new opportunities. Let's go. So it feels like she's always got, you know, that grasp on the future. And George is just kind of sticking to the past because there's nothing guaranteed in the future. Do you think, okay, because I, I understand you you disagree with my um, my premise of uh, Peppy. Of Peppy. Yeah. Or, of of um, the, uh, Beatrice, is that her name? Yeah, it's... Uh, Beatrice Lestrange. No. no. <laughs> she's Ber- not that French. Berenice Bejo. I think she's like Spanish. Argen- Argentinian. Something, yeah. yeah. Uh, Beatrice Bejo, like her performance, I read it as being very modern and different. I'm wondering, you know, based on the the reading you had of like, you know, she's feeling more modern. Is, is Do you think that's on purpose? 
Yeah, like, do you I, you think know, she is like being more modern because her character is supposed to be this next wave. Yeah, and I yeah, that's a perfect way to describe it. I feel like we have I try to describe as well as I can. Yes, like the old Hollywood and the new Hollywood, where we have someone that has grown through the vaudevillian days, which would be George, and her, where she's kind of like you know suitcase in a dream, and kind of you know no, I want to stick in this you know genre where you know I don't really have to you know sing or talk or do anything i can just you know be the hero the swashbuckler the the aviator i've got this and her where it's you know no i want more deeper more critical roles and it's just you know these two very different spectrums of hollywood you know old hollywood new hollywood which is funny because uh this is more like old hollywood and ancient hollywood yes because they're i i think it's an interesting thing because like they're talking about like the like the transition of the silent era into sound. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talked about singing in the rain. In singing in the rain, that transition, according to the movie, was like six months. Yeah. Right? In reality, it was like a couple years. Yeah. Because Jazz Singer's 27, but it took a while for every studio to adapt over to sound films. Cause was Jazz Singer 27 or 29? 27. 27? Okay. Yeah, because what is it? Um, City Lights, or not City Lights, Modern Times Modern by Times. Chaplin. That was what thirty three. Yeah, that that was after sound, so it but, was. But Chaplin was famously the last holdout for yeah. silent cinema, and th- that's what we kind of get in this movie, where George is like, you know, it's like no one's telling him that he's a bad actor. It's him being stubborn, and I don't want to move on with the times. I I love the twist at the end when we actually figure out why he can't transition. Mm-hmm. I love that. We're we're gonna get into that, yeah. but it is interesting because through the movie. We get George being very stuck to his ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's kind of true to life. There were a lot of silent film stars that were like, guys, sounds sounds just a fad. It's just going to pass, you know, just like, you know, uh, a horse and just like these whole, you know, cars, you know, motor vehicles. We're going to go past the horse and buggies next summer. Yeah. Which is interesting, but it's also interesting as to his reaction to it. He comes off as very dismissive of sound. Mm-hmm. He almost looks as sound, not as like, oh, it's a fad. It's like, this is like... A joke. Yeah. Like, why would you put this in a movie? This makes no sense. Mm-hmm. And that that's something that's unique to this character. Because Singing in the Rain, it, I think they are playing it off as like, oh, sound. It's this new big thing. And it's going to be a whole humdinger, you know, catch yeah. this one. But in this, it's almost like, no, it's a joke. Like, why, why would we ever do this? And then you kind of see him being pretty much punished for the next hour of the movie for not adapting to the times yeah punished in a sense but he's also kind of punishing himself because there's opportunities people are trying to help him and he's just like i got this i'm gonna do it on my own i'm gonna hemorrhage cash to make my own silent movie to show that you know silent movies are still the way to go and yeah it just you know it bombs at the box office yeah and it's and that's a thing that's interesting also, in the movie. And, you know, I love that they also put in, you know, real world things like, you know, the stock market crashing in 29. Yes. And he loses money in that. And you see, you know, he has to auction off things from his home. He has to sell his home. It is it is very interesting how the movie is playing with, is playing with its timeline. Mm-hmm. Because the movie starts in 27, right? Yeah. And we end the movie in 33? I believe so. So, yeah, because we get like a five-year span or something like mm-hmm. that. It's like 33 or 32, maybe. 
Um, I can't do math. But it's, yeah, you can. Eh, not well. But it's one of those things where the movie is kind of showing the decline of George and the rise of Peppy. Mm-hmm. And Peppy is kind of like... I'm trying to think of a good uh, surrogate for her. Like, do you know what her character is kind of based off of? Is it like a Marlene Dietrich or... Um, um, I don't remember if they said, you know, who she's supposed to kind of, you know, be embodying. I think she's just kind of her own creation. She's mm-hmm. not like... Like, you know, with George, you're able to tell, you know, he's Fairbanks and Gilbert and, you know, a, a lot of A little bit these, of Gable, a little bit of that. A little yeah. bit of Chaplin because he's really able to pull your heartstrings in this movie. You just feel so, you know, so bad for him. But I think Peppy's just maybe a good mixture of a lot of these women from this time. Um, she has I, a Clara Bow look to her. Clara Bow, um, she's got the smarts and the the wit and like the American sweetheart of Mary Pickford. Mm. She has like the little beauty mark going on, um, yeah. which, God, there's there's an actress from, from like the Slyon era that I'm forgetting her name, but I think they stole a lot of her look over mm. and... I do apologize. I can't remember what the fuck her name is. These people have been dead for like a hundred years. Yeah, that's the only bad thing. It's like, you know, I love silent movies, but I don't know a lot about these actors apart from like the the big silent film actors like Chaplin, Buster Keaton. Um, Pickford. Pickford, uh, Fairbanks. It, it, is, it is a very interesting thing because yeah. like so much of like, so much of this movie is a love letter to those people, that silent mm-hmm. cinema. I mean, they they directly parallel it when they show literally they show Zorro in the movie. Douglas yeah. Fairbanks is Zorro. It's in- actual footage and you know, they just CG'd um Jean Dujardin and like the close up scenes, but I mean that's actual footage from a Fairbanks movie. I don't even think they CG'd. I think they literally just just cut away Fairbanks's close-ups and then just inserted that, different that, close-ups. That's what I mean. Sorry. Yeah. yeah they yeah, they I, did cutaways of it, but it's just, you know, it's not they had him just redo those scenes. It's like, no, we'll actually show authentic silent film footage in this movie. And it's it's just interesting how much of this movie is that kind of love letter, you know, down to like not just in the characters like looks cuz um, George Valentine is very much the Fairbanks. We said it a million times. He, he's got the the pencil mustache, mustache, mustache. But the other thing is how the movie is made. Yeah, because that's the level that I think people don't understand. Is yeah, it's black and white and it's silent, and they use and there's sound in two scenes used strictly for like story purpose. Yeah, that, the the film was meant to make a point. Yeah, and but, it was filmed on Super Thirty Five and Panavision. Yes. And it, you know, to my surprise, I, I just learned this today when I was doing my notes, was it was shot in color and then turned into black and white. But I think it benefits because it gives the movie this really warm feeling. Well, the here's the reason they did it. And this is what I was going to my point with, you know, the production side of it. The They filmed it in color because the black and white film stock of now is too sharp mm-hmm. you go back to silent movies the black and white's a little soft there's yeah. a lot of gray the whites are pretty like w- like fluffy and things like that and they found that if you shoot something with 35 millimeters color stock and then in post desaturate it it's closer to true silent film stock mm-hmm. and the other thing is they shot the movie in instead of the standard 24 frames a second that's what basically every movie you ever see is is in 24 frames a second yeah they shot it in 22 because silent film is kind of wonky in that way like it's I, faster yeah it's a little bit faster uh, uh passion of joan of arc um mm-hmm. by carl dreyer 
that movie is famously has issues with this because you can watch it in the intended 16 frames a second or the more appropriate 24 frames a second. And there's a whole argument from from all these silent film people being like, the frames matter, goddammit. Yeah. You know, just like in speed runs, the frames matter. But that that is a thing that I find so interesting in the fact that there's no zooms done to anything because they're like, well, the silent movies didn't have zooms. Yeah, they- I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to try to even pronounce uh, the director's last name. I, I watched the making of, they said it really quick, and I still, I just can't, you know, pick it up. This is the one problem with our... Um, with our podcast is none of us can pronounce people's names. I mean, looking at is... it, his name's Michel Hazanvicius? Hazananavikius. Haza... Well, we'll just say Michelle. Mi- Michelle. Yeah, Mike. Mickey. But, you know, it's a thing where, you know, he understands, you know, he's a movie lover too. And it's just, you know, he wasn't doing any craning shots because these shots weren't around, you know, when these movies were being made. So it's like, you know, he's like, you know, respecting the the old style, the original style of how films were made. It's also fascinating because the reason he makes the movie is because he's just madly in love with silent film. And this is his, you know, love letter to cinema, to Hollywood, old Hollywood. And the interesting thing, right, about that whole conceit is, I think pretty famously, I think it was F.W. Murnau said this after uh, Sunrise was released. And he... I, I'm pretty sure it was Murnau. It might have been somebody else. But they lamented the introduction of sound because they thought sound set back cinema decades. Beca- <laughs> now, here's why. The silent film, you know, genre, like the silent film era. Yeah. By the beginning of the silent film era, like the, basically the dawn of cinema, was all experimental. Yeah. We're trying to figure out what the hell is a movie? Mm-hmm. How can you communicate with film? How can you like get things to work? And if you watch really early film stuff like um, Trip to the Moon, Great Train Robbery. The first Frankenstein movie. First Frankenstein movie, the Thomas Edison one. It's all locked down. We're basically filming a stage. The camera does not move. Mm-hmm. We're just trying to figure out how to tell a story. Yeah. And then you get something like you know, intolerance, D.W. Griffith, where it's mm-hmm. like, okay, big production, grand stuff. We're getting close-ups. We're we're picking up more and more stuff. And that's like 1915, right? We get the kid. Yeah, the kid, Chaplin, learns how to really like is evolving storytelling mm-hmm. as they're going. In 27, Murnau's like, we have just scratched the surface on how to truly tell a story with our camera because we've now learned that we can move the camera yeah. in ways that we never learned before. But then when sound came along, they're like, you got you got, you are a slave to the microphone. You mm-hmm. have to leave the microphone in a specific po- spot so the actors can do it and because of that you can't move the camera. And also your cameras are loud. You have to do them up. So then cameras went from being able to move around and do whatever they want and really experiment with the frame and the to composition, being, you know, stationary. Yeah, and that's interesting because if you watch movies from the early 30s, for like most of the 30s, it goes back to being very locked down. We don't mm-hmm. move around a lot. And we only start getting real camera movements once cameras just get fucking lighter in the 60s. Yeah. So I'm thinking, what would have happened if we never got sound, you know? And I think this movie is kind of asking that question, being like, hey, we have all of modern technology and all the learned cinematic languages, and we can still make great movies without sound. Yeah. I think that's kind of the objective the director was going for. At least that's my what my reading was. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, look at the silent film. 
it just completely sweeped at every, you know, award ceremony banquet that it, you know, was nominated into. And it's like, yeah, you know, silent pictures are still able to move us. But it also makes a good point of we can't stay in the past. We have to progress. Mm. And, you know, eventually we'll talk about the end of the movie where, you know, we do get some progression. It's lovely. I love the ending. I, I was hoping. I, I wasn't sure, you know. Everyone, the ending to this movie slaps. It is so good. Is it Kino? Kino. Good. Kino ending. But, you know, we, we've mentioned that a bunch of times because you watch the Oscars like I watch the Super Bowl. Yeah. And, you know, you keep saying the movie swept, the movie swept, the movie swept. Technically, um, technically it didn't sweep, but it won fucking it won like three out of the five biggest awards of the year. Yeah, I mean, you know, unfortunately, Berenice Bejo didn't win um, best supporting actress. She, I don't even think she was nominated. She was nominated. Best supporting? Oh yeah, she was nominated for best supporting. I'm surprised you didn't get lead. How did? I don't sounds like category fraud to me. I I know I I didn't understand it either. I wasn't happy because I think she put in an amazing performance. Um, I I wonder if that was a a role to try and try and make sure she could get one because if she was in Best Actress, she would be fighting against Meryl Streep. Yeah, that was pro- that was probably a strategic move. It could have been, but you know something that kind of caught me off guard, and I didn't learn that till today was you know obviously the movie wins for best score. Yes. It, the score is phenomenal. It, it takes you on a journey with, you know, the emotions of the movie, the it, the highs and the lows. Yeah, it plays really well in, like any good silent film does, well into what's going on on screen. And it's also taking cues, this movie specifically, from other scores of the era and from other, like, pieces of music throughout cinema mm-hmm. to try and make you feel like you are watching this like not even a love letter to silent films a love letter to like emotional storytelling without dialogue to which, cinema to, well yeah like um like cinema but music is the original just like eternal communicate communicator like y- people feel things when mm-hmm. they listen to music that is like unexplainable like music just works in a way to your brain that just doesn't it's it's really interesting this yeah. movie is this movie is very beautiful but, but yeah the score but you know so the person that composed the, the score for this movie was uh, Ludovic Borsch. Uh, I have the CD somewhere, but good what, old Luda. Yeah, but what was interesting was that he didn't have any training in uh, leading an orchestra. Mm. It was a thing where you know he had learned how to read music as a kid, and you know learned how to pick up you know different instruments and did that. But this was like his first time actually conducting an orchestra and creating you know base basically like a symphony because this movie is you know it's very big yeah it's the yeah the music sounds very big and composed i mean there was controversy because i guess he um kind of stole some bernard herman score from well, no, vertigo there i don't think there was controversy because um the director michelle he used um the Vertigo love theme, right? He does. But in one of his other movies with Dujardin, he uses music from North by Northwest. So it's a thing where he's done it in the past. And I mean, I remember the first time I watched this in the theater and I'm listening and I'm like, I know this piece of music. And, you know, it took me a couple of tries, you know, watching the movie again and again. I'm like, oh, Vertigo. But I mean, it was just this strong feeling to the music that I had in Vertigo that mm. I did with this movie. And it works in both scenes that we get, you know, 
uh, the scene with Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak when she comes back, you know, from the dead. And then we have um, George, who is just, you know, at the end of his rope. And he's just like, you know, I'm ready to let go of it all. Yeah, well... I mean, don't get me wrong. It's beautiful. But there was controversy because I guess like Bernard Herman's wife was like, hey, I didn't get a check for that. And you that used his... I don't remember or I haven't seen any of well, that. Well, I, I saw when I was doing my research, but that was a whole thing about it. But mm-hmm. I mean, the score is very good and it is using like homage yeah. like throughout. And I mean, even Pennies well from done. Heaven, you know, makes a, a cameo. I'm so surprised that's in the movie because it's the only it, I that's the first time we hear a person's voice. Yeah. In the entire movie, and it's like forty minutes in, and I'm like, "What? Wait, wait a, well, I, it's been so weird. I haven't heard a human voice in like forty minutes." Dude, try watching this in the theater. <laughs> I mean, it, it was such a trip just to be in there, and you know, you're not hearing anything apart from the score because you're just so used to, you know, hearing the dialogue mm-hmm. along with what you're seeing on the screen. But I mean, I swear, when he drops the glass, I jumped out of my seat because I had gotten so used to. You know, not hearing anything and just watching that the sound, you know, it scared me. I was like, what the hell is that? And I was like, oh, he's putting down his glass. Like, wait, there's sound now? It, it just kind of threw me. Yeah, it. there's an interesting thing about the movie is that there are very surreal dreamlike moments mm-hmm. into it that work so well. And that in the nightmare scene where he starts hearing sound and he's going crazy and he can't hear his own voice, though. He's and screaming at himself in the mirror and nothing's coming out absolutely genius oh yeah absolutely genius use of storytelling but you know we're talking about the oscars and i wanted to bring this up because you know it won best picture and i feel this was a little bit of a weak year now i'm gonna i'll read Mm -hmm. off the the other categories you know or the other um people involved and i just want to know your opinion do you think this i i had already looked up i already know what was out that year Mm -hmm. a lot of those movies i enjoyed so it made it difficult because i liked those movies but i liked the artists more than i liked those movies okay well let let me you know read it off for our audience okay so we have war horse you Mm -hmm. know steven spielberg's war horse right his foray into more dad movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have The Tree of Life, Terrence Malick, mm-hmm. which is an amazing movie, but it's a very like artsy, artsy movie. There's yeah. like dinosaurs in that movie, and it's about this family in like Texas. Really weird, artsy movie. Moneyball, mm-hmm. Brad Pitt, like it's a baseball movie. Yep. It's probably the baseball movie now. Midnight in Paris. One uh, of my favorites. Boo loves Woody Allen. Just adores oh, him. Oh, no. Just all the movies he's done, he's done nothing wrong. No. Great filmmaker. Factually incorrect. Dude's uh, a douche. A gross douche. But I do love Midnight in Paris. Then we have Hugo, because Scorsese's like, I need to make a kid's movie, goddammit. And that was a big movie that year. It was. It was It was nominated more than um, The Artist. It was nominated for 11, and mm-hmm. it won five. Yeah. Uh, we also have The Help. Yeah. Another good movie. Another good movie. Octavia Spencer. She wins Best Supporting Actor for this. I mm-hmm. believe uh, um, Viola Davis. No. Uh, yeah. Viola Davis was nominated for the movie as well. Yeah. I, I couldn't remember if Viola took it too or someone else took the award. Uh, uh, Meryl Streep did for The Iron Lady. Well, yeah. Uh, again, you know. Yeah. You, you, never, you never run against Streep. Just just go home. I just couldn't remember if she was there that year. Yeah. Apparently she was. Yeah. Uh, and then we have uh, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, a movie mm-hmm. that... I think everyone at this point thinks is is like not a good movie. Haven't seen it. Th- that's what uh, the other half of people uh, think about that movie. 
I looked this up because I guess it has like a 40% on Rotten Tomatoes, like really? a critic score. And I'm like, this is nominated for Best Picture? Like, whatever. Uh, then we also have The Descendants, which yeah. is like comedy drama, George Clooney, mm-hmm. and then The Artist, mm-hmm. right? Artist wins. But all the rest of those movies, I looked at them and I'm like, yeah, I don't know any of these movies, honestly. Like, I think The Artist out of all of these is like the biggest swing in the most like Oscar bait movie they could have possibly designed. There was a lot of, you know, big movies that were in there that year, but I think that this was the right pick. Do you, I, I understand it's the right pick. I agree. It's the right pick out of that list. But do you think that that list of movies, it might've had a, an easier run? Cause there's at least, cause we talked about this with gods and monsters, right? With Ian McKellen. And he's like great Oscar worthy performance. And then you list off like, five all-time great cinema performances and you're like that was a rough year man i'm so yeah. sorry no but i think you know it had some contenders you know going against scorsese scorsese was going against scorsese spielberg um woody allen woody allen say what you will you've about got him. brad pitt in there you've got uh george clooney in there so it's like you know there's a lot of you know big people and then you have this french film with you know a couple of American actors in the movie. All supporting roles. Supporting enough. roles, yeah. I, also, I'm going to point this out. They say Malcolm McDowell's in this movie. He is in one scene. I did it not still get counts. A, I did not get enough McDowell in this movie. B- were you surprised when you saw him? I am so surprised I saw Good. him. I was like, I've... Malcolm McDowell's in this movie? Yeah, I fucking love Malcolm McDowell. I, I know you do. That's why there was no way I was going to tell you he makes a cameo in this movie. I was so mad he's only in one fucking scene on it. And it's not. He doesn't even do anything. He looks at a paper. He's like. Mm, yes, and then hands it back to her, and then that's this whole fucking scene. We have well, Alex DeLarge, and he and you. Well, waste yeah, him. but you know, it's Peppy showing him, you know, ooh, I'm I'm this kind of like, who is this girl, the new it girl, and then you know, just with Malcolm McDowell, you know, his expressions and just with the sweep of his hand, well, well, who is she? And it's just she's like, like I'm famous, and he's like, bitch, no, you're not. <laughs> slaps the slaps magazine. That's why it's like you know, it's very you know, it's a quick scene, but at the same time, you know, it, it's funny. Well, who is she? I don't know. Yeah, and that, and it's it's very interesting. It's very interesting because the movie again, it did have contenders. I just thought it was so wild that this won Best Picture because of how weird it is. Look, it's okay, not that weird. Okay, I'm gonna release a silent film from France in 2011, and it's gonna make. A hundred times its box office and then sweep every award ceremony? Like, that is insane. Yeah. Come on. You got to agree that it. if you were a producer, right, and you were in charge of money and you were like, we need to make money, and you greenlit this, this seems like such a huge, like, this seems like such a huge risk. Again, I just, you know, earlier in the episode said that this was major boo energy. Absolutely, if I was a producer, I'd green light this. Uh, that, that's true. I, I might be talking to a, a, a difficult audience on this one, but you know, we'll we'll talk we'll talk about this, right? The movie, fifty million dollar budget, makes one hundred thirty four million at the yeah. box office. Again, fucking, who's going to go see this this silent film? The hello, ne- ne- never mind. Yeah, you want to go see it five times in the theater? Why again? So wild to me. It is so wild to me I, how well this movie did. Yeah, I mean, you know, I saw the trailer for this movie on the news because it was this big thing that happened at cons. Yeah. And it was, 
you know, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, this is the the star, you know, of, of the film festival. And they proceed to play the trailer. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is everything that I've ever looked for in a movie. So I had to wait from when it debuted at Cannes to when we finally got it here in the United States. And it was worth the wait. So I can't be the only one that saw, you know, the trailer and thought, you know, oh, no, this actually looks like it's going to be an amazing movie. I have to go see this. It it feels like such a movie out of time. It feels like me. a warm hug. Uh, oddly enough, a lot of people described it as being like just this like nice like melodrama blanket. That's just mm, it makes you love going to the movies. It does. It, and it, you're just you know so weird. You're in turmoil over there trying to figure it out. It uh, well, you know me. I like I like thinking about movies and figuring out why they work. And it's like and the driving movie, yourself crazy. Oh, I love doing that. Oh, I stay awake at night driving myself crazy. But the I mean the movie I get I get why it works. It's a melodrama. It has some beautiful, lovely you know scenes in it. There's a really interesting art going on. I think the 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 swing it's taking just by existing is worth the worth the run. Honestly. I mean the the fact that it's a silent film again in the year of our Lord 2011, and it's and it works yeah. is insane to me, and the fact that it's not played as a joke like it's not a parody. Yeah, you know it's not like Mel Brooks's a uh, silent movie where he's like you're gonna release a silent film. Yes, why? And that's and that's the whole fucking joke. Yeah, you know this is like no we're releasing a silent movie. There's no you know. No strings attached. This is our movie. We're taking it very seriously. And these are the lives of our characters living in this world. And it's it's also such a blank check kind of kind of gig. Because I guess the director filmed basically the French version of Austin Powers. And they were like, this did well enough. You can make yeah. whatever you want. Yeah, I, it was uh, something. OSS 117. Yeah, I watched it after I watched um, The Artist. Oh, really? Because I love Jean Dujardin. I mean, I had never seen him before, but, you know, I, I loved his portrayal of George Valentin. And I'm like, he's a good actor. So I'm, I don't know how I found or I rented a copy of it. And he's hilarious in it. I absolutely love it. Appa- well, again, it's a it, apparently it's a thing where he is really famous in France as like a comedian. Yeah, he's he is- also France's um, George Clooney. Oh, okay. I guess France can all have their Will Ferrell look like George Clooney. Yeah, French is just like, going to be like that. Some bullshit. I mean, Jean Dujardin is a very handsome man, and he could <laughs> dance. Oh God, do you, you want to talk about the ending? I know you do because you're. It's so good. So the ending is, so after George has hit his rock bottom and Penny's like lift him up. We'll come back and describe everything that happens in the rock bottom. You know what? Let's do that first so everything makes sense. So George, he rejects sound. Penny accepts sounds. Peppy. Peppy. Sorry. Penny Lane. Do you want me to relay it? Yes. You relay. You've seen this movie, again, six times in theaters, 12 times at home. Probably more than that. This year. I mean, I still have the LA Times uh, newspaper after it won all the Oscars. I'm in, I'm impressed you still own newspaper. I've got a couple of newspapers from, you know, big events that have happened. But You're like, that... I got my copy when Kennedy died. I got that on my wall. No, those go for a lot of money. Uh, all right. So the artist, what happens? So after George rejects sound, he makes his own movie, Tears of Love, which bombs at the box office. Uh, from there, it's just him kind of 
sizing down because, you know, he's got that big, you know, loss. He's already lost money from the stock market crash. And while he's declining, Peppy's rising. And it's just this thing where we see him, you know, moving into a small apartment and not really doing much. Um, I thought it was heartbreaking when he finally lets go of Clifton. Oh, his butler played by James Cromwell? James Cromwell, his driver, not his butler. Okay. But his, Might as well be his butler. His driver slash best friend. Ma- manservant. Male confidant. No. Companion. Companion. Best Com- best friend. Best friend. One the of his, homie. One of his best friends. Because Uggy is also his main man. His doggo? His doggo. I love him so much. His little Jack Russell Terrier. Oh my God, I love him so much. But yes. But, uh, you know, we start to see the real fall of George and he just, you know. (laughs) Takes to the bottle. Takes to the bottle. Um, You know, he's going through footage and he's just kind of like, I I can never be at that level that I was and starts a fire. And then it's like, oh my God, why did I start a fire? He is saved by his dog who is able to get help. Peppy, you know, takes him home to help, you know, have him recuperate instead of sitting in a hospital. Then, you know, George discovers, because there was a silent auction to sell off all his stuff, Peppy being the good friend that she is, she bought all of his things, but had two of her staff outbid each other to really put more money into George's pocket. Because you you assume at that time, you know, he's got debts rolling. Mm-hmm. So it's just, you know, he she's trying to help whatever way she can. And he's just, you know, she even comes up with the concept for, you know, the two of them to be in a movie. He rejects it because he's he just can't let go of that pride. And Clifton's like, you need to stop being so proud and just accept the help. He he wants to be the artist, the lone auteur. Yeah, and that's a point that he makes in his you know newspaper synopsis for his new movie is, you know, I'm not like these people that are jumping on a new fad. I, I am a true artist and I will stick with silent films. And it's just you're just being stubborn. Which ultimately leads to his attempted suicide attempt. And I think this is the Oscar winning moment for Dujardine. Because, I mean, he's phenomenal in the rest of the movie. But I think this is where we truly see that George has broken. Yes. And it's just, you know, especially when he's sitting at the scene and he's crying. And he's covering his mouth while he's crying. And you have all, you know, the... The, the inserts of the mouths like talking and laughing and it's just, you know. His anxiety about the human voice. The human voice and him feeling like he has no voice. And, you know, he's there and I mean that that part makes me misty eye every time I watch it because you have Uggy who's basically begging him not to do it. He's barking and he's clawing at him and he's just looking at him like, you know, I, I can't, I can't, you know, do this another day. And... What did you think when we get the bang on the screen? Okay, I love that because Peppy realizes what's going on. George has ran mm-hmm. off and she's driving to his house as George is like getting the revolver down. He's going to, mm-hmm. you know, kill himself. And it just cuts to an insert of the word bang and it holds. And I noticed it yeah. held longer than any other intertitle. And I was like, no, this movie doesn't have the kind of balls to do that to me, right? Because honestly, I was like, I mean, this is a French movie. I mean, George might have just killed himself. They might have just done that to me. But then when it cuts back and it's like, oh, no, Peppy just crashed her car. Just and crashed it's like, the oh, 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 okay. And I'm like, women drivers, am I oh, right? Oh, wow. Oh, am I right? We save your ass and, you know, over here, no, you guys can't drive. <laughs> 
I mean, ob- objectively, Peppy can't drive, all right? She did crash her car into a tree. Hey, she was waiting for Clifton. Clifton was on a break, and she's like, you know what? Time is of the essence. I have to drive this big-ass car to go save George. And, and that car is it's huge. It is. Old-school town cars. But it is, it is great, like... I thought that was wonderful. I'm surprised it didn't win Best Editing. I looked. Uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo won Best Editing. Oh, okay. But I'm like, that. this seems like, like, granted, it's classic, like, build tension, mm-hmm. whatever. But I'm like, I love the callback. I love, like. Did your heart drop? I, it didn't drop. Like, again, I wasn't like, oh, he killed himself. I was like, no way they fucking did. Well, yeah. No. You know, that would count, like, you know, like a, like, oh, my God, what happened? Well, I wasn't like a, oh, shocked. I was like, oh, do it. Do it. You fucking won't. I, I was oh, kind please, of, you're sitting there on in the, the dark, low, probably. I no, was, George, no. On the lowest of keys, I was like, I want to see it. I want to see it cut back and he's dead. And then it's like all color now. Like, right? Like, he It's dies. not going to go Wizard of Oz. No, no, no. Like, could you imagine? All right, hear me out here. If this movie had a darker ending. George kills us. Bang. Cuts back. Sound is now in the world. It is now color. Because he was silent cinema and he has died. And it comes in and Peppy's crying and it's a whole thing. And, like, that is the ending of the movie is now we're in the modern age of Hollywood. Because he was the avatar of silent cinema and now he's dead. No, I'm good with the ending we have. Yeah, the ending we have is much uh, happier. Because the ending we have is, you know, Peppy's like, wait, there's one thing we can do to bring you back in and make you a star again well it's a you know there's a conversation right before that you know where she's apologizing to him for making him feel like maybe she was trying to push him and you know she felt like maybe she was the reason that he ended up with the gun in his hand and she's you know he's kind of like no it's just you know i'm the reason why i I put this in my hand because everyone that's tried to help me i push them away but you've always been there over this span of five years you know he's uh lost his wife because his wife just couldn't you know put up with him anymore i mean i love that i love that whole you know speak to me but you see him you know he's even silent in regular life yeah and i mean the other thing with that is like there's another callback to citizen kane when they're at the table the the breakfast yeah and it's the progression of like that's another great one but the ending they have the conversation they kind of reconcile their their differences. Like he is he is going to give in, but he says, "I have no idea how I could I could come back." You know, like mm-hmm. I can't I I can't be in talkies. And she's like, "There's one thing you can do that will that can make you a star again, that can bring you back." And they create like the Fred Astaire and Ginger yeah, Rogers. Yeah, they they create these iconic Hollywood duos, mm-hmm. and that's when we jump into. Um, I always forget John Goodman's character name in the, the movie. The producer guy. Or the like the owner of the studio. Mm-hmm. But they're in his office and they're they're doing the dance scene. And he is just, you know, bright-eyed, the big cigar in his hand, like, you know, oh my God, no one has ever thought of this. Oh my God, I'm seeing something brand new that I can market. And, and then we transition into the actual scene. The final shot where it is this big musical number and we're hearing the same kind of score we've heard out the whole thing and we're hearing the tap and we're like, oh, that's cool. They actually put like tap sounds in there. That's interesting. But you don't really realize it's happening because it's so tied into the music. And then when it finally finishes and it's holding on them as they're like, you know, mugging towards the camera and you hear them breathing and you're mm-hmm. like, wait a, wait a fucking minute. Hold the fucking phone. And then it's like they're breathing, they're breathing. And then John Goodman's taps the director and the director yells, cut. And I'm like, 
First Wait, word of the movie. First word of the movie. And then it's like they say something and John Goodman's like, I loved it. Perfect. But can we do it one more time? And here's here's the twist of the movie, right? Because throughout the whole movie, I'm wondering, why the why can't he transition? Like he like at first he's like, Oh, it's a fad, it's never gonna do anything. And then it turns into a thing where he's like, I could never do it. And then people like, you know, George Goodman's producer is like John Goodman. John Goodman. It yeah, John Goodman <laughs> is like look no one's gonna want to hear you talk and i'm like why like he's a great he seems like Mm -hmm. a good actor real famous and then you finally hear what george valentine sounds like he's french (laughs) with with pleasure monsieur and i'm like he has the thickest french accent i'm like oh oh i love that twist yeah because i mean i uh, love that yeah because uh jean dujardin and berenice bejo and the director they speak english so it's not a thing where, you know, it's this French cast and they, you know, it's really, really French where they don't speak the language. No, they speak English. It's just, I think it was a thing where they couldn't get him to shake the accent to make him sound more American. I It's on purpose. I'm so positive it's on purpose because it explains why he's like, no one wants to hear me talk. And it goes into so many of those silent stars. You like know, John Gilbert. John Gilbert. Because he, I think he had a really high-toned voice or high-pitched voice, and that's why... He had Brock Lesnar syndrome. Yeah. He, he looks like this big bruiser brawler, but when you hear him talk, you're like... It doesn't match. He sounds like your high school English teacher. You know, it's that's that was the thing. Like, I know there was... um Was it Greta Garbo? Who, when she transitioned, she was... They were like, you have a very thick, like, Swedish accent. Like, we don't know if this will play. And then it wasn't until, like, she gets a few roles that it works out. But there yeah. was a lot of silent film stars who were from France, Germany, whatever. Yeah, different and countries. Like, different countries. And they're like, we can't understand what you're saying. Yeah. Like, your accent's too thick or your grasp on the language is shaky at best. Like, Bela Lugosi. Yeah. It, we've said this before. If Bela Lugosi broke 10 years earlier, would have been fine. If he came to Hollywood in 21 instead of 31 totally different career path yeah and in his huge biggest problem was his language gap like he when he did dracula he didn't even speak english he learned it all phonetically exactly you know he learned the language through movie scripts and you know i think it's fine you know if you have an accent it doesn't matter i mean i get it if you're trying to portray a role for a different nationality and you want to sound like you're part of it okay well you gotta think because the movie's making this statement of being like, this is why so many silent actors faded away mm-hmm. in 1931. Yeah. Where it's like, we're marketing to an American audience in middle, you know, Oklahoma. And it's like, bro, like, I don't, I don't think we can sell you. Like, you don't, mm-hmm. you, your act, your French accent is so thick and it doesn't match the character we've seen. Cause we've seen Douglas Fairbanks. We've seen mm-hmm. Zorro, you know, the swashbuckler. We've seen, mm-hmm. you know, Oh, this guy's probably gonna like come out here. He's gonna sound like John Wayne or something. He's like, a spy. You know, like, He's in the a Russian affair, a German affair. You know, all these big movies, and then yeah, he's he sounds he he comes out and it's like, oh, you sound like Pepe Le Pew. You know, like and that's I think such a wonderful, beautiful twist in the movie. And it's like, I oh, love yeah. Pepe Le Pew. I of course you do. You know, but it's a thing where it's like it makes so much sense in the movie. It is yeah. like a perfect little twist on the movie that just works. And it's so subtle and simple. And when you think about it, you're like, oh, of course. That that also is an interesting thing because I found this out uh, later. Was I guess like some of the scenes were shot because there's a, like a real script with dialogue, yeah. right? 
and some of the dialogue is like they're speaking English and some of it time they're speaking French mm-hmm. and sometimes they're speaking straight gibberish. Yeah. And I was like, that's kind of like genius because you intertwine those. And if you go back to some scenes, you're like, no, he's speaking English. And then when scenes when he's by himself, mm-hmm. you know, when he's maybe like talking to his dog or whatever, he's speaking French. Yeah. And I'm like, that is like a really weird, subtle thing that... Again, that's probably why he won the fucking Oscar, all right? That's probably why they brought home the gold statue was this ending. But, you know, to tie back into that final scene, the dance. Where they're parroting Ginger Rogers, Fred Astaire. Yeah, you know, it's this beautiful set. You've got that great opener where it's the guys with the the clapperboards, you know, Mm -hmm. leading into them finally dancing. Uh, John Dujardine and Berenice Bejo are not dancers, it took them six months to perfect this dance because there was no cuts. They performed the dance in its entirety for two minutes. Mm. So they wanted to make sure that they knew those steps and they were going to, you know, hit them every time. I think Dujardine said that they shot it 17 times till they finally got the the perfect take. You, you can tell. And yeah. I'm, I'm not saying that in a bad way, but it's a thing because they're trying to do the callback to, you know, your Fred Astaire's, mm-hmm. you know, and... Desjardins is a great actor. He is not a Fred Astaire dancer. No, no, but and, and it's a thing where it's like I just, I'm just I just appreciate the work they put into it. But it is it is very interesting when you really look at the scene. But this is where it kind of ties into old Hollywood magic because you know mm-hmm. just dedication to the craft and story you know storytelling. So them practicing for five months every day to you know really lock down this dance. They practiced every day. At the same studio that Debbie Reynolds and Gene Kelly used to rehearse for Singing in the Rain. You know why? The ghost of Gene Kelly came in and was like, hey, that was nice. Now do it again and again and again. Because I I imagine the ghost of Gene Kelly still haunts those hollowed halls and tell people, (laughs) that was good. Now we're going to do it again and again and again. Hey, you need need some inspirational ghosts that'll keep you going. Keep, you know, the... The status quo up. Some people are afraid of like, oh, it's the ghost of a serial killer. I'm like, you don't want the ghost of Gene, Kill- Gene Kelly coming around telling you to to work harder because he will work you to death. No, but I mean, I love that, you know, this movie has so much attention to detail for Hollywood on screen. Mm-hmm. But it's also mirrored off screen where, you know, they have them performing, you know, where Debbie Reynolds and Gene Kelly were performing for Singing in the Rain and this music or not this music, this movie parallels Singing in the Rain so much, just in a darker tone. And then we have, you know, stuff behind the scenes, like they had them staying in like old Hollywood homes up in the hills of Los Feliz. And they were saying that they would practice the, you know, the dance in the garage sometimes. And they're like, we could see the Hollywood sign from where we are. So we're kind of getting these vibes of, you know, this is the life that these people lived. And uh, Shane Black, who is uh, the producer for Monster Squad or screenwriter. Uh, screenwriter for Monster Squad, screenwriter for Lethal Weapon, uh, screenwriter for The Nice Guys. Yes. Uh, apparently, George Valentine's home in the movie, that's Shane Black's, or it was his home. You, you know whose home it originally was? Who was it? It's like Mary Pickford. Mary Pickford or Marlene Dietrich? No, no. Mary Pickford's home was Peppy's home. That's right. That's right. That was the home she lived in before she built Pick Fair with Douglas Fairbanks. Pick Fair was torn down in the 80s. So I don't know if this house is like part of her estate because um, the bed that George wakes up in after the hospital, Mm -hmm. that's Mary Pickford's actual bed. Um, What is it? When he goes down the stairs to like discover and like kind of look around the house, 
the the dining set that's behind him that is her dining set and that's all like her china and her stuff that's on the table that's all hers so i'm assuming it must still be owned by the estate and it's still cared for and I guess maybe used for movies or events or something. I'd imagine it is very interesting that how dedicated this movie is to paying its homages. Yeah. But honestly, overall, I think the movie just just works as a good rise and fall love story. It reminds me a lot of like A Star is Born. It's it's kind of like the Star is Born meets um, Singing in the Rain. That's a that's a kind of a good way to describe it. Yeah, and I love that you know there was just so much care into you know uh, pre production filming and post production. I mean, I I just you know it for me as a movie fan and you know loving doing research about movies and you know figuring out that they put uh, Jean Dujardin in an isolated 1930s house in the Hollywood Hills to kind of make him feel like George. You know, he's just alone and has nobody, you know, in his corner. Kind of like when we have that scene right before he lights the fire and his own shadow leaves him when he's yelling. And I'm just like, wow. I love when this movie gets like expressionistic Mm -hmm. and goes into that German expressionism, the 1920s stuff where it's like, that's what like silent film really like dug its teeth into where the real art was. I love the scenes when it does that and gets weird and gets kind of like crazy. I love the shadow work in it. It's did so it, good. Uh, did it pull your heartstrings when they rescue him from the fire? And when they finally get the the reel away from him, it's him and Peppy it's dancing. Their, it's their outtakes yeah, when they get outtake. to dance like normal people. Mm-hmm. It. The movie is just lovely. And it's just have, this little feel-good kind of movie. And it's it's beautiful all, all around because you have her looking at the film cell and they're doing like the noir lighting. They have, you know, they're looking at her through the... They got the Venetian blinds. The Venetian blinds. Yeah. You've got, you know, this just white light just pumping in through the hospital room. So, you know, she contrasts in her, you know, her costume that she's in to go see him. The, the movie has great composition. It does have great composition. But there is a filming location that I don't know if you noticed. I know the Bradbury it, Building with the yes. steps. Yeah, you don't. It's the most famous steps in L.A. I right? know. I was hoping because I know how much you love the Brad Bill, Bradbury Building. I also building. like how I didn't even have to let you finish. Yeah, because I was like, I know, I know the location. I, I, I watched the movie. <laughs> okay, because I know how much you love uh, Blade Runner. Oh, I oh. And just, you the know, library buildings has never looked as good. I mean, that that time that we went there and I think we just both stood in like the lobby in shock because it was just like, well, it's, it's real. You can it's look here. Up and see the fucking thing. I it's know. Cool as shit. But I mean, it's such a beautifully composed scene, you know, them in the stairwell. And, it's you know, you can see that genuine love that he has for her. And then, you know, placing her a little bit higher up on the steps and showing him a little bit lower to show that, you know, his. His status is dropping, but she still has eyes for him. And, well, the other thing is the composition of, you know, the stairs and everything. That's like a direct reference to D.W. Griffith, I think, like Intolerance. I'm pretty sure that's a direct reference to one of those scenes. Haven't seen Intolerance. It's, th- it's three hours long. Yeah. We'll, I'll tell you about it later. <laughs> it's kind of weird. But overall, I really like the artist. Uh, do you have anything else you wanted to say before we hit our wrap up? Um, I mean, there's so much that I could talk about this movie. Um, you don't say. I, I do. I mean, like, you know, the coat scene where she goes into his dressing room and she pretends that he's, you know, caressing her. 
very creepy, but so not so creepy, nice but, for the movie. But you know, it, it's based on an actual movie, uh, Seventh Heaven, with Janet Gaynor from Twenty Seven. But I think you know where I'm gonna leave it with my last boo fact is that I love that all the posters and the film marquees are telling us what's happening along the path, along the journey. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the, every little marquee in every movie they're in, it is basically giving you the plot beat of what's going to happen in the next yeah, scene. Yeah, like when she buys all his stuff at the auction and he's walking down the street, you know, it's a poster of her as the guardian angel or, you know, and he kind of looks, you know, lost after he gets to the end of the street and it's a theater marquee that says the lonely star. And it's just, you know... It's just showing you where we're progressing, and it's like, oh, okay, that that was my thought, and I'm glad to see that I am, you know, keeping on with what the the director was thinking. It's 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 a very clever little production piece and like writing piece. Again, I I, I kind of know why this movie probably didn't win best screenplay. Uh, well, well, for yeah. one, the screenplay was like 40 pages long, yeah, and was, there was, was no dialogue. Yeah, but like, ah, uh, that's like such a clever, interesting thing. For the movie to do that I, I really did like that but yeah um your final thought I mean I absolutely love this movie adore this movie um I can't recommend it enough two strong thumbs up um if you're afraid of silent films don't be I mean if you want to branch out into it try this movie um Th- this is probably one of the better movies to start a silent film because it's again it's a it's a modern movie yeah like, it's a modern film yeah. you know but it's a period piece and you don't really feel like you know ooh, you know this hasn't aged well or you know i can't really keep up with going on it's like it's very simple to keep up with what's going along in the story yeah and it's a thing where the acting is uh, the all the acting is very modern and naturalistic mm-hmm. when it's hammy old school acting that's like on purpose because the actors are playing a role you know it it really does work as a nice little okay this is like a broad overview of what a silent movie is Mm -hmm. and it's very digestible it's very easy to work with i would i would recommend this to anybody interested in silent movies that wants a very nice dip of the toe into that genre or that era of film because it's a good genre i mean i know you know as time goes by, we progress and we pick up new technology. But, I mean, there are some phenomenal silent movies that'll just, you know, they'll get you. I mean, this movie makes me cry, but... I have know. said this on more than one occasion. We've made the greatest movie ever in 1927, and it didn't need dialogue. Watch yes, Sunrise, I everyone. Know. You and Sunrise. It's so I good. Know. It's so good. But, yeah, you know, I mean, this movie was partially based off of Sunrise, so... You know, please give silent movies, you know, a fair shake. I mean, look into it because, I mean, the, the history of silent films is fascinating. You know, just the how to basically do everything because it was such a foreign concept of filmmaking. But just how, you know, these actors, you know, were huge stars and then they just kind of got wiped away because you have an accent or you don't have a singing voice. It, it's, you know... Uh, What's the quote? We didn't need words. We had faces. Ah, Sunset Boulevard. Ah, such a good film. But talking about, you know, silent film stars, actors, you know, famous things, 
So we're going to talk about probably one of the most famous actors of all time. Of all time. For, for next week. Actor, public figure. Director, writer, producer. Musician, composer. We're talking about Chaplin next week. And this is the Robert Downey Jr. biopic of Charlie Chaplin. Comes he- out in the mid-90s? I think so. Early to mid-90s, somewhere in there. And uh, uh, it is... It is another movie that you have lobbied for as being should have just you should have just given him the Oscar should have mailed it on the premiere day. Yeah, yeah. This, this is a movie that I will always fight for. Uh, I don't know if you noticed we had uh, one of the stars of Chaplin in The Artist. Was that John Goodman? It was not. Fuck. I I I we want watched, me to give it to you. Okay, I'm I'm trying to think because we watched Chaplin together years like, ago. Like years ago. Like I think God. Like had it been fucking eight years ago. Let me, uh, let me James just... Cromwell? Nope. Fuck. Batman? No, not Fuck. Batman. Who? Penelope Ann Miller, who plays John Dujardin's wife in the movie. Oh, well, fuck me. Okay, so... Oh, yeah, she is in the, she, in the movie. She is in Chaplin. There, there's like four wives in Chaplin, all right? I well, get she, thrown she's off. She's not one of his wives. Oh, God damn it. No, okay. she, she works for Chaplin. Remember, she's the one where she eventually quits... And it was like revealed that he like gave her a paycheck for the rest of her life. He made sure to take care of her. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be very interested in revisiting Chaplin because the last time I was watched it was with you. Yeah. yeah, and I remember really liking it. I remember really liking Robert Downey Jr. But I remember literally nothing about that. I movie. figured. Well, again, I watched it once. That that's why you know I figured you only watched it the one time. I watch it every now and then. But I'm really excited to talk about Chaplin. Uh, it should be a good episode. But if you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. You can go to our YouTube channel, The Film Vault. That is The Film Vault on YouTube, where eventually Dean will get off his ass and upload slideshow versions of this podcast. We love slideshows. But if you wanted to follow us on social media, you can go to... The Film Club Podcast on Instagram, where we post daily stories, upcoming episodes, and random adventures we go on. And with that, we'll see you next week at the film club. Have a good week, everybody. Oh, no, we'll say goodbye like George Valentine. Listen. <laughs> so cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>